Let's cut to the chase, have an honest conversation, and develop real answers. As a matter of fact, with Andrew Cuomo. Hello, and welcome back to As a Matter of Fact. I'm Andrew Cuomo. Well, another crazy political week with distressing news almost everywhere you turn. It's a question of the chicken and the egg. Which came first, political dysfunction or social dysfunction? That's the question we're going to have to answer down the road. But this week, we're going to take a break. And it's my pleasure to be joined by a special guest today, Governor David Patterson. Governor Patterson has had a long, successful career in public service. He was the 55th governor of New York State. That's a great number. Double nickel. (laughs) I was the 56th governor. Governor Patterson uh, was a New York State senator. Before that, he held the position of Senate minority leader. He then became lieutenant governor and then governor. Uh, David Patterson also came from a great legacy of public service. His father was a colleague of my father, uh, the late great Basil Patterson, uh, who was a pioneer in politics. Uh, Governor Patterson was the first black governor in New York State's history, and he established many important precedents as governor that serve the state today. Uh, In my opinion, he's one of the few executives who successfully transitioned from a legislative role to the role of an executive. You know, people often diminish the skills needed to excel in government. And they think that any position is like any other position. It's like saying in sports, if a person can play uh, one game, they can play another. If you're a good golfer, well, then you're a good football player. You know, it doesn't work that way. Being a legislator is, is a job where you advocate, you work with colleagues to advance legislation. But executive is a totally different job. It's a different skill set. You have to do all of that, plus you manage, you operate large system, tens of thousands of employees. And also being governor, you are a singular entity in many ways. You don't have the protection of a group or a legislative conference. You make the decision. The buck stops on your desk and you take the heat. So it's a much different job and a much different transition. And Governor Patterson did it seamlessly. Governor Patterson, we're now getting a little bit older. We're about the same age. We're about 32 years old. Or are you 33 now? Which is it? I've lost track. I think um, something like twice 33. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let me ask you this. When you look at what's going on nationwide, these are crazy times. Uh, And it looks like we're headed for a Biden-Trump rematch. When you look at the national scene, what do you make of all of this? I want to go back to your chicken and the egg uh, dilemma. I think that the social discord in this country uh, has arisen from the political discord. I think back when our fathers served and even when you and I served, there was sort of an understanding that you had a duty to perform certain tasks, regardless of your political point of view. Now, you might want to change the system to adapt to what you think is better, but at least there was an understanding that there was a system. Now I don't think that that really exists. People say whatever they want to say. They contradict themselves with some of their conduct. When their political opponents do something, they they revel in it, and then the next day they do the exact same thing. And, And I don't want to put this person down, but I'll give you an example. I read a couple of days ago that Lee Zeldin, who ran a tremendous campaign, came within five points of defeating uh, Governor Hochul. But he turned around and said that when the Senate was run by Republicans, they didn't have late budgets. Well, from 1984 to 2007, Congressman Zeldin, they did have late budgets. So I don't think there's any reason to bring that up because uh, it it just takes the issue and uh, makes it pedestrian. And what I sort of remember, and I think this is just a quick example, uh, Governor, in 1986, I'm a freshman senator, and we had a resolution 
to, uh, for New York State not to invest in any more companies that did business in South Africa. This is right in the thick of the anti-apartheid apartheid movement. And during the debate, Senator John Markey, the late senator from Staten Island, made a point that 75% of the black people that lived in South Africa supported the apartheid movement. I then rose and said to the uh, Senate members and to Senator Markey that my understanding was that in South Africa, it is a crime to have a political position that's antagonistic to the government. So I wanted to know who the 25% of the people were, who endangered themselves by saying that they were against the apartheid movement. After the session, when I come out of the chamber, Senator Markey is sitting in the lobby outside and he goes, oh, uh, Senator, I've been waiting for you. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to get a lecture. He's the dean of the delegation. I sat down and he said, you know, my office went back and researched what you said. You're absolutely right. And I just came to thank you for the information, because while I'm not changing my position, I'm never going to use that in a debate again. People had a sense of their public service reflecting their own um, personal morality. And I think that it's, it, it's not existing right now. Yeah, Let, I, I think you're onto something there, Gov. So let's stay with that for a second. Uh, it almost seems like the, the performance level across the board has dropped. Yes, the sense of duty, the sense of responsibility, but almost the degree of professionalism has dropped. Uh, it's not taken as seriously. Uh, there's not as much discipline about it. And I think part of it is there is less scrutiny by the press. And stay with me for a second. You know the expression, you're only in tennis, you're only as good as the player on the other side of the net. Uh, when you have a really engaged, smart press corps, they challenge you every day, and they challenge your facts. You know, uh, when your example, when Senator Markey said that, I guarantee some reporter was going to go back and do some research and catch up to Markey's office and, and call up and say, you know, he said this, but the fact is X. I think the press has diminished almost across the board. It's more partisan. Yes, we always had the New York Post, which was clearly partisan, but now it's right across the board. It's Fox TV, it's electronic, it's the print. Uh, and the reporters don't have the time or the information to go as deep. You know, everything's about Twitter and everything is is fast. So I don't think the the press is holding government as accountable on the substance, which is allowing government uh, to decline. Does that make any sense to you? To amplify what you said, Governor, in today's New York Post, there's an article written by somebody named Quinn, who had the audacity to write about the bail reform package that was passed in 2019, and here it is 2023, and they are now uh, talking about the crime increase since bail reform passed. Well, bail reform passed in December of 2019, two and a half months before the pandemic, which caused crime to, uh, to, sp to, sp to, to spiral all over the country, all over the country. And all of this is an issue about bail reform. And, and by the way, bail reform has some degree of an effect on the rate of crime. But the real problem with crime right now is far more complicated. It's a bunch of young people who are out doing nothing for a year and a half during the pandemic. It's uh, people who've moved out of New York State, for instance, and the tax rolls are getting smaller and smaller. They said at one point 7,000 people were paying half the taxes in uh, New York State. It's, it's probably much less than that now. And I think that um, the media itself has just goes for the quick headline. Yes, theoretically, uh, the crime rate is up since 2019, but a whole lot of things that happened in uh, 2019 that we could blame it on. But the real uh, uh, blame lies 
in uh, what was uh, an unpredicted event, and that was the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I want to get to I want to get to uh, what I call the urban crisis, but just to stay on your point about the press uh, and incorrect information or. Uh, an analysis that is not deep or smart enough on this issue of bail reform, which is uh, a trigger for crime, as you exa- as, as, as you said, right? It remi- reminds me of the days where people were afraid of crime, so it was all about the death penalty. The death penalty was not going to solve crime. The death penalty was only for police killers at that time. So it was never going to be the answer to the mugger on the corner, right, the death penalty. But it became the symbol. I'm afraid of crime. I want the death penalty. Now it's crime is a problem. Uh, I want uh, bail reform. Uh, Bail reform is not going to reduce crime. You're right. It's much more complicated. It's tied to what happened in COVID. It's It's tied to what happened in with George Floyd's murder and the relationship between police and the community and a police force that has a deteriorated relationship with the community where they don't feel the confidence uh, and the backup. And the police department will, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends in the police department who will say, look, you know, I'm, I'm more careful. I'm more reticent than I used to be because I'm afraid you wind up on the wrong video, you lose your job. Uh, so all this talk about bail reform, it's not going to make a darn bit of difference on the rate of crime. Where Are there more police? Are there more police on the subways? Have we repaired the relationship between the community and the police where the police feel empowered to do their job? Are we doing something with the young people who are running around and don't have jobs? Uh, this was all a lot of noise and it's self-defeating because uh, nothing's going to change on crime because they didn't address any of the real issues. And then people are going to be more negative about New York. It's not making progress. There's more crime. Let me pack up. Let me leave. What do you think? I think once the businesses start reopening and uh, the midtown space in buildings starts getting used more. So obviously there are more people to employ. And I think that's beginning to happen. But uh, after such a tumultuous period of basically three years, Governor, there hasn't, uh, it's hard to recover from that same way it was hard for us to recover from September 11th, what what happened then. And so I couldn't couldn't agree with you more. And I think that um, there is, again, going back to what I was saying, that duty to at least Report the facts, even if you don't agree with all of them, but to make blanket statements to blame all the crime increase on uh, the failure to to uh, to pass one more bill. By the way, Governor, I want to point something out. I wonder if you know this. The uh, judges, their increased authority, which I agree with, and their ability to assess dangerousness, which I agree with, was not. Uh, put into law by the Democrats. It was put into law in 1971 when the majority leader of the Senate's name was, the Speaker's name was Perry Durier, and the governor was Nelson Rockefeller, all three of them Republicans. They passed that law, but they, like the Democrats had any, something to do with it. The only thing the Democrats didn't do was they didn't include it in their bail reform of 2019, and that's why I think legislatures reacted negatively because they got blamed for something that was there before they got there. That's true. No, it's a, you're exactly right. And uh, back in 2019, I had proposed dangerousness because I support it also. In my first proposal, the legislature uh, eliminated it. Uh, but let's stay back with this New York City. Here's my fear on this. And this goes back to my days at uh, HUD, Housing and Urban Development. The cities, cities are fragile, uh, fragile entities, and you cities can tip over the edge. You mentioned the point about how few people actually pay taxes in New York. You know, we have a skewed 
tax system. So the very wealthy pay the overall predominance of taxes. You lose the wrong 20 people, you have a serious problem in your revenues. And post-COVID, Governor, you don't have to be in a city anymore. You know, this remote work is going to change society. And I don't believe we're going to see people going back five days a week. We don't even have people in government going back five days a week. And I was talking to a group of businessmen. I said, look, why don't you all insist everybody must come back to the office five days a week? Because that's the only way you're really going to get New York City back, because the restaurants, the shops, they need those people filling those offices. And the businessman said, look, we're afraid if we insist that people come back five days a week, they'll go work somewhere else. They like this three days a week, two days a week, and then I work from home on the computer. But that, that, uh, that can be truly devastating to a city because you don't get people back in those office buildings. You have a glut of commercial vacancy, which is going to wind up bankrupting buildings, if not insurance funds and REITs and banks. Uh, it's going to drop revenues. You allow that crime to increase. Homelessness, which is much worse than anything you and I have ever seen in our lifetimes. Uh, you put all those things together. People start to vote with their feet and uh, go for a lower tax rate, a better climate. We're going to have a real problem in cities all across the country, and I think starting right here in New York. Governor, did you ever imagine, say, 10 years ago, that today you would be interviewing me, we would be looking at each other, yet we're five miles apart? It's just a whole different world. And I think the, uh, the, the change that it's caused is going to be very difficult to reverse right away. It's a new culture. But when you graduate that to the level of elected officials and business owners and people who really are the leaders of our city and our state, we, we recognize that, I think, like you said, there is a lack of performance, a, a lack of understanding. How can you take certain positions because you're safe in your district and not recognize how the rest of the state feels. By the way, there was a whole reorganization plan for New York State back uh, about a, uh, well, actually over a hundred years ago. And a man named Harry, Henry Stimson, he was Secretary of War to President Woodrow Wilson. He was in charge of it. And he wrote this a very interesting piece about executive power, because uh, if you think about it, over 100 years ago, let's say 1915, that's still uh, like 150 years since the Revolutionary War. So the uh, public was very afraid of one person having too much power. They were very much anti a sort of king figure. And so everything was even, Stephen, you know, the legislature had to check with the governor, the governor had to check with the legislature, the governor basically had no power. And he wrote, there should be one man, but we'll give him a break and say, basically, there should be one person who's up late at night worrying about the problems of the state, that inevitably, it's hard to govern in concert. You need that one person who's the leader, and if you don't like him, you still have a democracy, you can throw them out. And I think that we've moved away from that, particularly in Albany, where uh, it's almost like the group is speaking in, in terms of the legislature, as opposed to a majority leader or a speaker. And um, the, maybe even the governor is confused as to who she's actually supposed to talk to. That brings up another topic and a timely topic. Um, we just finished the state budget. Now, for those uh, listeners, viewers, who have not had the uh, good fortune to enjoy watching the state budget process <laughs> over the years, uh, 
It's it, it sounds trite, the state budget, but it's not really just doing a budget. The state budget is the main action of the state government for the entire year. It is the action plan for the state. It's all the priorities. Uh, it's many of the main policy points, and they call it a budget. Uh, and the budget uh, had been really uh, a debacle for years, precisely for Governor Patterson's point. Uh, who was in charge, and it wound up being a food fight uh, among the legislature, the judiciary even, uh, which also has uh, a, a relevance in the budget, uh, and the governor. And these budgets were supposed to do April, be done April 1. It's in the state constitution. The budget must be done April 1. They would be months and months and months late. Uh, the state just finished the budget process, uh, and literally the headlines that we're seeing today on the state budget uh, give you a sense that it did not go well. The Huffington Post said that the governor comes up empty on housing in the state budget. Uh, the New York Times said Governor Hochul gets a budget deal but with no signature win. Politico, uh, Governor Hochul brings an Albany tradition, the late, late budget, and has ushered in a new era of dysfunction, which just hurts my soul, and I'm sure it hurts your soul to read that, Governor. Wall Street Journal, the big takeaway, Governor Hochul hasn't fully utilized the levers of power. That's Governor Patterson's point on Henry Stimson. So, uh, again, a little background for our audience uh, the budget process is more than just a budget. Uh, it's a, a the seminal document. It's also a litmus test for the functionality of government. And literally for decades, uh, it would be months late. It would go to August. It was embarrassing. Now, Governor Patterson, you rewrote the rules of budget making. Uh, and again, I followed Governor Patterson, so uh, I actually had the advantage of, of his good work. You established the preeminence of the governor in the budget-making process. You showed that the Constitution empowered the governor of over the legislature, which makes sense because the governor is the one official who's responsible for the entire state, right? It doesn't come from a, a district in Queens or in Brooklyn. Uh, but up until you, Governor Patterson, it was a food fight. Uh, and after you, it was clear that the governor wins. And that was a very, very big deal. And you also did it in grand fashion. I remember being attorney general and watching you in the Red Room in what was truly an historic moment in this state. And you sat in the middle, middle of that Red Room, which is the governor's main uh, conference area next to the governor's office. You vetoed 6,700 bills, if I recall correctly. And then you passed your own budget by what, what we call an extender. And you dared the legislature to oppose you. And both the Assembly and the Senate were Democrats at that time. And I watched you, and I said, wow, wow, that man is the governor. And there can only be one governor. Uh, in fairness, George Pataki, before you, also a member of the legislature, had sued uh, and gone to the Court of Appeals, Pataki v. Silver, on the primacy of uh, the governor. But then I then followed you, and I went right to the edge with extenders and the same legal threats, and I had budgets that were basically on time as a general rule. I also added a provision that said... If the budget was late past April 1, the legislature, the governor, and the executive would not get a raise that year. And they would lose the money. Because if you can't perform the one constitutional duty, then you had no business asking the people of the state for a raise. Uh, that was a powerful incentive for them to get it done by April 1, as you can appreciate. Because nobody wanted to go back to the conference and say, hey, guys, we're not getting our $7,000 this year. Uh, but I think it comes back to the fact that one of the keys to being governor is being able to use the power 
of the office, the power that the Constitution gives you, the legal power. And when you do that, you often stand alone. And you sat in the middle of that red room alone. And the comfort of colleagues cannot be a comforting, a governing factor in the equation. When it happens, it's nice. But you can't be governed by it. And that lesson is true for every successful governor. It was true for FDR. It was true for Rockefeller. It was true for my father. It was true for you. Uh, and Governor Patterson, you showed real courage when you took on the legislature. And it was even harder for you because they were your friends. You had just been the leader of the Democratic Conference. But there is an institutional tension between the governor and the legislature. And it's a balance of power and it's a tug of war. And we both know if the legislature believes they can beat you, they will beat you. And if they believe they can take more, they, w they will. So, Governor Patterson, people are asking today, if that is the history, then what happened this year? How did the budget get late? And how did the governor get denied, uh, basically, her essential priorities? How do you think it happened? Well, Governor, in in my case, uh, to turn the clock back, it's 2010, and I've announced that I'm not running for re-election, and I am fighting off accusations and allegations, and the legislature, knowing that, even though they were my friends, decides to send me a budget that, that is one bill short of being balanced. Uh, not a million, not a hundred million, one billion dollars. And I told them that was unacceptable. So after, you know, a couple of months of fighting over this, they said, OK, you win. It's five hundred thousand. It's five hundred million dollars. We'll split it. I said, this is not horseshoes. This is a budget that has to be balanced at the time it was passed. There have been budgets that were balanced on April 1st and were probably imbalanced by April 2nd. But at least you have to meet the constitutional deadline and also the constitutional mandate. They continue to just ignore and bother me. So finally, I said to them, if you do not pass this budget balanced, I'm going to take away every member item you have. Now, I think that the legislators thought that since I was always in favor of keeping the member items, these are uh, discretionary grants to community groups and the uh, assembly member of the Senate in that particular area knows the groups that are doing the good work. And for the most part, it's a, it's a very good program. However, I think that they didn't think or they didn't think that I would actually do it. And finally, as you said, I, um, I uh, sat in the red room and they would bring the bill and I would sign the veto 6,709 times. It was nine more. And uh, by the way, I lost the use of my right hand for months after that. But the point of the, uh, that, that I think you're raising that's so important is I felt powerless at the time. And I think they knew I felt powerless. And so you have to use your imagination. So when we were passing the extenders, those are the uh, pieces of legislation to extend the government at the same rate of uh, performance until the budget's passed, um, my uh, budget director, who was also your budget director and a great man, uh, Bob Megna, said, and Governor, we cut this down to the bone. They're not getting anything. I mistook what he said, Andrew. I thought he meant that we had started putting cuts in the in the extender. And uh, I guess I was on um, NPR, I think, with Susan Arbiter. And I said something like that. And Megna and um, uh, my secretary, Larry Schwartz, who became your secretary, and my counsel, Peter Kiernan, they came in all the different. Remember, there's a few doors that come into the governor's office. Yeah, they all yeah, come yeah. in from separate doors. And, and they said, what are you doing? We're not cutting in, in the extender. So I said to them, OK, I'm wrong, but why can't you cut in the extender? And uh, Peter Karen and my counsel looked it up. They had an impasse in 1981 and Governor Hugh Carey uh, came up with the idea of extending government into the next uh, uh, year while they passed the last year, and then it would be retroactive to the extension. And 
So I said, so we could put the the uh, cuts in the budget and they either in the extender and they either have to pass it or they, the legislature, are shutting the government down. And when they found out that uh, that was going to happen, uh, Shelley Silver, who I thought, kind God rest his soul, and I really liked him, but he said to me, that's the most naked political act I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I said to him, I can think of another one. And he said, what? And I said, what I'm going to do tomorrow. And so, <laughs> so I think that the problem, uh, Governor, in, in this situation is that uh, Governor Hochul has for some reason not exercised those powers. And, you know, I don't think uh, that it's that she doesn't want to. I don't I just don't think that she recognizes that she could change the dynamic that exists right now between her and the legislature where they actually in public say, oh, we get along great. And everyone knows that's not true. So why bother with that? Why not just go right to the heart of the matter and start using those executive powers that have been sustained by uh, 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 by courts in their rulings and use it to your advantage because even under the Constitution, the state is first depending on you to lead. The legislatures work with you, but the governor is the one that should be leading this. And it, it, it might be just my misunderstanding or yours, but it just doesn't appear that that's happening. And what you'd have to do to change that is challenge yourself to find to think of something that no one's thought of before, uh, a way to to um, uh, impose uh, the governor's uh, program on the state. Not all of it, but certainly a significant part of it. Yeah, uh, but uh, Gov, the I I think you're leaving out one element. When I watched you in that red room, I had true admiration. I was the attorney general. I was watching you. I had true admiration for you and your character and your courage because I knew what it took for you to sit there and do that, right? These were your friends for 30 years. You had dinner with them. You went drinking with them. You were the leader of the conference. And we were all politicians. Get along. You support me. I'll support you. Uh, and there you were. There's an Italian gesture to what you were basically saying to them, which is a flick from under the chin. But... You were saying, yeah, guys, that was yesterday. Yes, yeah, I'm a buddy, I'm your colleague, but I'm the governor today. And as governor, I have to do what I have to do as governor. And when I was saying before, it's a singular position. It's, it's almost a lonely position. And, yeah, you can have Meghna coming in one door and Kiernan coming in one door and, and, and Schwartz coming in one door. And I had the same three coming in the same three doors. Uh, and, and Meghna, by the way, you're exactly right, uh, a beautiful talent. And Larry Schwartz, uh, one of the best I've ever worked with at any level. And they can advise you, but the buck stops with you. And now you have to make the call. And it's two words. It's David Patterson. Uh, and what you did was brave. And, you know, you would like to say, well, we're all going to be friends and kumbaya and it's going to work collegially. It doesn't work collegially because that's not the structure uh, to work collegially. You have power that they don't. And if you don't exercise that power, you lose it. And when you lose it, you lose it on behalf of the people of the state. Uh, who cares if you're a diminished entity as governor? The problem is you just diminished your effectiveness for the people of the state of New York. Uh, and I think that's hard. And I remember as a kid sitting in the room watching my father in those leaders' meetings, and it was contentious. And I was like, oh, gosh, you know, I don't know that I could do that. Uh, and uh, when I worked with Clinton watching him, and, you know, he had to make the calls, and then 
watching you in that red room, sitting by yourself, I said, you know, wow, that's that's uh, put up or shut up time. And that's really the, the test of character and whether you measure up. Uh, and you measured up. And this is not about uh, friends uh, in Albany. You want a friend in politics in Albany, you get a dog, right? Which I did. <laughs> And then the dog bites you. But yeah, exactly. Even the dogs aren't always that friendly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, God bless you for that. Let me ask you something else. The political tensions that are going on in the Democratic Party now. Uh, we've always had a far left wing, right? That's, that's nothing new. Uh, there's always been a far left wing, different names, different acronyms over the years. Uh, the re far reformers, and sometimes they've been constructive, sometimes they have been uh, destructive. Today you have the so-called progressives. First of all, I don't even know what that means, because progressive is not a new word, right? It goes back to Teddy Roosevelt, FDR, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, your father called himself a progressive, my father called himself a progressive, So, but they call themselves progressives. Uh, I don't know what they stand for. I don't know what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, do you think they are a constructive force? Do you think they're accomplishing anything productive for the party? I think that historically in the Democratic Party, and of course, you know, we, we go back and look at some of the great changes that were made, you know, from uh, freedom of the slaves and and then uh, inevitably uh, Supreme Court decisions that uh, favored equality, it was the Republican Party that was really fighting for that. And the Democratic Party was on the other side. Woodrow Wilson was probably the most toxic Democrat that, you know, we, we, we call him a Democrat, but he really wasn't. And but if you think about uh, the 60s, the, the left, the progressives, the activists, they were fighting for real change and they were fighting for real issues. The fact that we still had segregation in this country until the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The fact that people were being denied to vote with these games they play in these southern counties until the Voting Rights Act in 1965. The fact that people all over the country, wherever you lived, were being discriminated in housing until we passed the Fair Housing Act of 1968. And then it continued with the opposition to the Vietnam War. And Martin Luther King was one of the civil rights leaders who expanded his progressivism to include all people when it came to uh, when it came to uh, international issues. And a number of black leaders uh, criticized King for getting involved in international issues, and a number of black militants, militants criticized him for not advocating for violence. And yet, at, the, at, at those times, there was really a moral um, backdrop to everything he did and the people at, uh, fighting for, uh, for fairness for people around this country were fighting for the women's movement. Uh, speaking of Dr. King, I understand that a group of ministers met with him right before the Civil Rights Act in 1963 and told him that if he let Bayard Rustin, who they knew was gay, <clears throat> speak at that march, they weren't coming. And Dr. King looked them in the eye, talk about bravery, and said, then I guess it'll be a smaller march. So what I'm saying is that, that um, the problem with the progressive movement today is it only focuses on a kind of utopian idea that will share all money among amongst all the people. Everyone will get the same thing. Um, uh, we'll we'll give money to causes even when the state doesn't have it, and we will change the world. It's almost like you're you're watching. Um, some movie like The Wizard of Oz or something like that. And I don't feel the substance. I don't feel the the uh, research that goes into the positions that many of them take. And I don't feel the um, uh, the, the uh, character being demonstrated that the people who were fighting as we did when we were younger for causes that we believed in and causes that even our adversaries realized were right. 
Yeah, yeah, no, amen to that. And look, <clears throat> if to the extent I can identify any principle, uh, it's what you pointed to, uh, the equalization of wealth, then call yourself a socialist and say, I believe in a socialist society. I believe in wealth distribution um, equally among members of society. I'm a socialist. You then have the question of, well, then why are you in a Democratic Party if you're a socialist? But at least articulate your beliefs, right, uh, uh, and pursue them intelligently. Because I don't see the, the constructive uh, impact. If anything, I see a, a negative impact. You look at the last election cycle here in New York. It was terrible for Democrats. Uh, you pointed out that Governor Hochul almost lost to Lee Zeldin, which uh, if the Republicans had a more moderate candidate, if they had a more Pataki-like candidate, uh, he would have won. I mean, Zeldin was really a zealot uh, when, it came to, when it came to issues like choice and guns, et cetera. But if they had a person who had any moderation to them, they would have won. And I think one of the things that happened is the Democratic Party refused to talk about the issue of crime, even though it was the only thing that voters wanted to talk about. Every poll had it at number one, number two. And the Democrats were saying there's no issue of crime. What crime? Where is their crime? That's all Republican propaganda. Uh, if they had run a better race here, we would have had Speaker Hakeem Jeffries right now. Uh, if New York doesn't blow it. And I don't even understand, since when did Democrats become afraid to say that they would fight crime? Every Democrat has always been tough on crime. I mean, what's the alternative? I'm soft on crime. <laughs> you know, and the majority of the people who are victims of crime, over 70 percent are black and brown. And who is the Democratic Party supposed to represent uh, if not that population? And you know, Governor. Uh, and then here, it's even worse. Here in New York, we made the same mistake twice. The year before, we just learned this lesson in Nassau County. Laura Curran, a good county executive, gets tossed because a Democrat, Senator Kaminsky, is running for district attorney, and people are. Offended that the Democrats are deaf to crime, they uh, totally destroy Kaminsky in his election, and Laura Curran loses as collateral damage. And this is Nassau County, which you know well. It's the backyard of Jay Jacobs, who's the Democratic chairman, who's who's watching all this. That happens, and they do the same exact thing the next year. And as Still we said, death on crime. And as we said before, Governor, this use of statistics, the statistics on crime the past few years pale in comparison to what was going on in the late 80s and 90s. I always love how people say back in the Dinkins era, Dinkins was never mayor in the 80s at all. He took office in 1990. And after two years, the crime went down. But that's an aside. The issue uh, is that. Crime is different now. It used to be compartmentalized. So you had uh, areas you kind of knew to stay out of, the South Bronx, um, areas of, uh, of Harlem, uh, uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant, South Jamaica. Th these were places that were known to have high crime and uh, known to have more incidents of crime. It's not like that anymore. We have seen two state officials. One of them was mugged at 74th Street and Park Avenue at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, a prominent person in the education field. Another person, a prominent a woman, they were both women, in the economic development field was attacked at 21st Street and 6th Avenue at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. A gentleman was shot in a restaurant at 62nd Street and Park Avenue. Then it starts to feel like there's crime and it can happen anywhere. And I think that's the difference. That's where a lot of the anxiety came from. And, and Mayor Adams was probably right when he said there's more of a perception of crime. But I think he also understands that when you're in office, perception can become reality in a heartbeat. 
So even if you have to fight a perception with another perception, you've got to do something. And they just blow off these statistics. And I think that's more than unprofessional. Uh, I think that is really uh, a reference about character, which too many people who've gotten themselves elected don't have. Yeah. The, you raised another good point, Governor Patterson. The crime. Crime has always been a problem for every city, right? It's always been, uh, there's been a yin and a yang. It goes up and down. But crime today, reality perception, it doesn't matter. And there is a randomness to the crime today. You're exactly right. It's anywhere, any time of day. I think it's uh, connected in part to the number of dangerous, mentally ill people we have on the street which I, I've worked on the homeless, as you know, since uh, I was in my 20s. At HUD, I was in charge of all the homeless programs. I've never seen this type of problem. Uh, and Eric Adams, I think, was right when he said we have to get more aggressive about helping mentally ill people who are on the streets. It's, it's not civil liberties to say, okay, you're mentally ill, but uh, you're, we're going to let you stay on the street because uh, that's your legal right. Uh, so I think he was right to say uh, he wants to take a more aggressive position. Again, it's all in the doing, as we know. It's all in the performance. And do you make a difference, and do people realize you make a difference? Uh, but I think the crime is, is totally different. And look, David Dinkins, uh, crime came down. He passed. Safe streets, safe cities. Governor, 54% increase in the number of police. 54%. Just think about that. Now, Rudy Giuliani really got the credit for the benefit of it because you can't hire 54% increase in police overnight. Uh, so really, uh, as they, they, they came on, the benefit was in the Giuliani administration. But that was David Dinkins. Uh, have to, we have to get strong on crime, safe streets, safe cities. By the way, the state paid the money for the police. Uh, this is a governor named Mario Cuomo. I remember <laughs> him talking about the bill. You know, <laughs> he'd come home and talk about, you know, how much money 54% increase in cops cost over and over and over again. But it was actually shared with the city. But that's, that's government. That's what made the difference. More police. And remember also at that time, the police had a better relationship with the community. And we didn't have the homeless problem. But they were doing something about it. Uh... This argument about bail reform, it hasn't, it's not even close to David Dinkins and a 54% increase in police. That's how you make a difference. That's exactly how to do it. And that was, unfortunately, as far as I remember, none of the police actually started working until Dinkins had left. So it was a big shot in the arm for Mayor Giuliani. And if you're mayor and it happens on your watch, you can take the credit and he should. But what I would say is that that would be a way to address the problem now. And the mayor, this mayor, is going to Albany saying the same thing that the last mayor did. And they have just made him feel like he's imagining all this. And that's why I think it crosses over from lack of leadership and lack of professionalism to lack of character. Well, yeah, look. The Albany, I think they are afraid of the far left. I think they are afraid of the defund the police. Uh, the moderates in Albany are intimidated by the far left. Let's be honest. Uh, back in our day, the moderates were the majority, but they also had vocal cords. Uh, the moderates are still the majority, uh, but they've been intimidated because the far left... They are tiny, but they are mighty. You know, they're activists. I had a senator say to me, uh, you know, they had 10 people in front of my house protesting. My wife was all upset. 
I said, come to my house if you think 10 people protesting is a problem. Let your wife spend the day at the mansion if she wants to get acclimated to government. But the moderates are intimidated. Defund the police, which is one of the most insane, dumb statements ever made. Uh, and uh, so I don't think Albany is being responsive to what Mayor Adams is asking. And if Mayor Adams doesn't actually get delivery, he's not going to make a difference. And as David Dinkins learned, uh, New Yorkers are an intolerant group. And they loved David Dinkins, but they elected Rudy Giuliani. And I was in that campaign with a man named Bill Lynch, God rest his soul, uh, trying to get David Dinkins reelected. Uh, and people said the same thing over and over. Oh, I liked David Dinkins. He's a gentleman. Uh, I really like him. I'm voting for Rudy Giuliani because I'm afraid about crime. And I'm afraid about the streets, and I'm afraid about dirt, and I'm afraid about homelessness, and I'm afraid about squeegee men at the time, which sort of, that was the, uh, the symbol at that time. So you don't deliver. They can like you, but you're gone. They'll still like you, <laughs> but they'll like you from a distance. So, Governor, I have a question for you. I don't understand why uh, Democrats in Albany now, they have both majorities. They could pass some legislation about crime. They could play the role the same way often the Republicans do. We're the crime fighters here, not them. And, and at the same time, some of these other issues that they're interested in that they want to pass, that could be the compromise. They take it. I mean, giving the governor bail reform would, was really, uh, in my opinion, symbolic and ceremonial, as we both said in this conversation. It's not going to change the crime rate, of, not a, a, a millimeter. However, if they were, if they'd done that, stood with the governor there, and then turned around and said, but governor, listen, you didn't give enough in minimum wage. You only raised it $2. We needed more. And the governor uh, has to settle with them. Wouldn't they be in a much better position than they are today? Oh, Gov, I don't think anyone won anything. <laughs> That's what you, I don't think anyone won anything. The governor loses. Uh, first, I'm with you. The answer was not bail reform. Uh, the governor's answer was, I want to fight crime, and I need a comprehensive package to do that. Yes, it's going to be more after-school programs. It's going to be uh, more employment programs. But we also need more and different policing. Uh, I would have taken the opportunity not just to add police, but to change the way we do policing. So it's not always a person with a gun. You triage with mental health, substance abuse, et cetera. The governor could have had a full crime reform package. Uh, which would have been a win and would have made a real difference and would have made Mayor Adams successful. Uh, and then you're right, the quote unquote far left uh, picks something that you actually want to accomplish for people. Uh, it could have been anything. They still haven't done anything about the failing schools. Uh, well, we don't want charter schools. Well, what's your answer? to a neighborhood that has had the same failing school for 40 years. I mean, just, there was so much good work to do, and nothing of any significance happens. By the way, the loss of the affordable housing plan, uh, I'm working on a project of this growing urban crisis in America. The number one factor why people are leaving cities, not crime, not taxes, the unavailability of affordable housing. Uh, that could have been a real big positive that was done. So I, I don't see what anyone accomplished. They were a month late. They all look bad. Uh, they haven't helped New York City. And they then raised the payroll tax where I think you're going to see a continued exodus from New York City. Pack your bag, 
I'm heading to a warmer climate and lower taxes. So I don't get it. Yeah, and one of those warmer climates is Florida, and it, it's uh, half the size of New York, and yet the uh, quality of living is much greater at this point. Oh, yeah. And look, I say, you know, the governor of uh, Florida loves to say, oh, everybody's coming to Florida. Let's be honest. New Yorkers always went to Florida. Everybody's grandparents I knew went to Florida. (laughs) That was the social trajectory. You worked, you retired, you went to Florida uh, and you stayed there and your kids went over for Christmas and and they visited you. So uh, people always liked warmth. But with remote work now uh, and with, yeah, remote work makes it easier. The taxes make it easier. And then the crime, the homelessness, et cetera. Let me ask you this because you've been very generous with your time. Uh, I often replay my governorship in my mind, right? You replay the game uh, uh, over and over and over. To me, the uh, real test for whether or not a governor is a success is the sine qua non test. But for you, would this have happened? But for you, uh, would this have happened? When I look at you and your administration, what you did on the Rockefeller drug laws was historic and profound and but for you would not have happened. It saved many young lives. Uh, It redeemed lives. It took courage. It took guts. uh, And you made it happen. Uh, And it was long overdue. Sine qua non. But for Governor David Patterson, that doesn't happen. Uh, when you think back, uh, what is your proudest accomplishment? Uh, and if you could replay the game, what would you do differently? You know, it's so timely, Governor, that you would ask me that question. I just went to the annual gala, which had been postponed for three years, of, of Phoenix House. And a dear friend of both of ours, Mike Klein, asked me to come and uh and uh, Mary and I to chair the dinner and just to see the reaction from these people who said I had I was an alcoholic for 27 years and then this and that happened and now I've been clean for 20 years um, I think it was the the Rockefeller drug laws and my admonition to people who find themselves in position where they have some decision-making capacity Don't be afraid to lose, because I thought I was going to lose. I, the Senate at that time had one more Democrat than Republican, and they had four Democrats who would would be more than happy to go and vote with Republicans, and they stayed home. And uh, uh, and I don't know how we talked them into doing that, but I would agree with you. That would be my proudest accomplishment. By the way, Governor, earlier in our conversation, you rattled off some uh, quotes from all the newspapers, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post and these other, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, print media. Uh, but I'd just like to point out that in today's New York Times, uh, somebody we used to both work with, Assemblyman Jeff Denowitz, said that he wishes that you were here to have supervised over this particular budget crisis. So I just thought you'd like to know that before we end. Yeah. Well, you know, talk about irony. That's like them saying, they wish you were back in the red room. <laughs> but the, the, the irony is this, and I think, I think the legislature gets this at the end of the day. When government works, it works for everyone. When you got the budget done on time, it wasn't just you. They all looked good. When you passed Rockefeller drug law reforms, every legislator went home, and uh, when they got up and they spoke at their community meeting, they said, 
By the way, I voted to reform the Rockefeller drug laws, right? <laughs> uh, when I would pass a budget on time, they would all go back home and say, yeah, we got it done on time, you know? Uh, we built a new LaGuardia airport. We built a new Moynihan train hall. You know, those accomplishments uh, inure to the benefit of everyone. It's not the governor or the legislature. It's both. And when they fail, it's both. They're now all going home, and they're going to have to stand up, and everyone's going to say the same thing. Why were you late? What happened? And all these half a loaf, half a loaf, half a loaf, they're all going to get argued uh, arguments from the other half of the loaf. I got half a bail reform. I got half a charter school. I got half a... So uh, it doesn't work for anyone. It either, at the end of the day, it either works for everyone or it doesn't work for anyone. Uh, Governor Patterson, it was so much fun to be with you. Uh, and and uh, your recollections and your insights are so profound. I want to thank you. I also enjoy listening to you on WABC radio. Uh, God bless John Katamatidis, who owns WABC. I want you to know that I feel for you. Because it's always like you versus 57 conservatives on that exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, Governor, uh, it, it was a pleasure to do this with you. And uh, I told you we made history. We're the first governors to interview each other. And we also made some history because unlike Shelley Silver, my wife let me have this glass of water here. I did not spill it through <laughs> the entire interview. So here's to you, Governor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Governor. My regards to Mary. All the best. I'll see you soon. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. I see.